Now we're recording. Don't worry, that's just our robot. Okay. <laughs> as long as he's friendly, or she. Um, so I'm. I went to Rhode Island to the University of Rhode Island to uh, study for my master's degree. And one day, I think it might have been raining. I'm not sure, but I was just kind of strolling across campus, sort of in the usual days, you know. And uh, I came upon a room. It was just a little tiny space, and uh, I decided to go in. And so I went in the door, and it was just a small room, and it was dark. And there were about four people sitting there watching Star Trek. So I sat down, and that's all it was for, was to go in if you wanted to catch Star Trek. So every afternoon after that, it was in reruns, I'm I'm thinking, because, you know, my memory, it was a long time ago. and it, I, was I mean, at, it was only on for three years. So anytime after 1969, I believe, it was it in had reruns. reruns. Yeah. Okay, then that's a correct memory, because it was about 1973 or four when I was doing this. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's animated series might be what's on, but there is or not. Two. Yeah, the, yeah, the original yeah. show is over by this point. So it was wonderful, though, to walk in and see this. I never seen it before. And after that, the same little group of people would meet there every afternoon and no one ever spoke to anyone else. We were busy and uh, we just went in, sat down, got it and moved on. And it was something that got us through. It got me through the hard parts. It was the most incredible thing. I'll never forget it. Kirk and... Um, Who's the one that has the ears? Spock and uh, mm -hmm. Spock, Dr. Spock and Kirk and Scotty. Uh, the major characters were stranded on a rock. That's the first episode I remember seeing. And I don't really recall exactly how they got there or uh, how no, they it, got away. It was, never, it was never ever clear how they necessarily got there most of the time. They're just like, oh, well, we were doing a thing and everything <laughs> broke and now we're stuck. So here's the show. Here we're starting. I just loved it. That's just how I remember finding it. And I don't know. It was great. Speaking of, here's the show. Oh, hi, everybody. Welcome to Gay Space Communism, uh, your favorite leftist Star Trek chit chat and or theory show. I'm, of course, Paul Byron, and I'm joined as always by Corey and Amy. And oh, my, we are we are all dressed in our, our Starfleet best because we've got a guest on the bridge. <laughs> Peg, are you are you are Amy's mother, I understand. That's correct. And I assume that's been just a very rewarding experience to raise Amy for however many years it's been. Uh, welcome. Um, we're glad. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you. It was a real privilege to be her mom. And um, it was expertly done because my mother's <laughs> an early intervention specialist. Oh wow! <laughs> what? I'm sorry. I'm stupid. What is that? I uh, went to school to learn about children, very young children, birth to five. And uh, I got a job as one of the first early intervention specialists in Western North Carolina. And we home visited. We went to see families with children who had special needs. And it could include almost anything. The range, it was birth to three and their families. And we provided help with them to get their therapy straightened out. Little babies who are born with spina bifida or, oh, any number of disorders. And we helped the families to get what they needed. And we worked with the children. And it was just the best job ever. 
So we called it Riding the Range. <laughs> and this was about 1998. So that was kind of the heyday in North Carolina for children and family services. Been downhill ever since. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, those, a lot of those services have really been scaled back by just, I mean, gutted by funding. And, and also there, there seems to have been a big shift in the, the kind of cultural valuation of services like that. And, and that is such a shame. It's, it's a thing that I hope we're in the process of turning around now because that sounds like amazing work. And I know some young moms right now that would so deeply appreciate having a resource like that available to them. Yes, it's a wonderful service. My take on what happened to our mental health system is that around the time that I, well, what happened was this. The mental health system in North Carolina was going pretty well. We had enough Medicaid clients to pay that we could serve private people who were in the gap between Medicaid and poor. You know what I mean? I mean, you know what I mean, no, that, right? That widening gap yeah. of people who can like who cannot access public services because of Bingo. various gatekeeping, but also can't afford the ostensibly available services to which they are then steered. Yeah, it's a lot of us now. It's that's the exact population. It sure is. Well, back then they could get served because of the fact that it was a state system and it was for nonprofit. Well, I worked for Blue Ridge Center. That's just the one in Asheville, North Carolina. But there were these centers all through the state, and they had begun to be profitable enough to build their own buildings. And the mental health centers had really nice facilities in all the counties. And when they got built, that's when the system crashed, became privatized. Those people we were just talking about can't get services anymore. And it's because it went from the public sector to serving the people to the private sector to serving the dollar. Yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to, you know, work our way away from and, and the, exactly what we talk about on this podcast about the, the future ideal that Star Trek represents. Ah, yes, that's right. And all the diversity. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it is. I mean, the aspirational quality of the show in general is something that is the reason it sticks is the reason we think it matters and that they keep making it. And because I mean, there are, you could do any number of stories about people in a spaceship, but there is something about even flawed as it is in time from time to time, like it's written in the periods it's written in and written in the ways it is, but it still speaks to, oh, hey, what if we just prioritize not dying or money or so any more humane world? Yeah, like how often do they talk about, um, you know, there's so many times in, throughout the different Trek series where they'll rescue an alien and they're providing them medical care and they have to have the conversation like, no, we're actually treating you for free. Like, that's just a thing that we do. Like, I can't afford this. <laughs> you're like, no, it's, 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 not, it's not like that. We know you're from America. Yeah. But no, this is yeah. just a regular ambulance. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So I'm, I'm curious, Peg, um, you know, you, you talked about kind of falling in love with the original series when you were in college. Have you watched any of the, the newer iterations, anything past the original series, like Next Generation or any of the others? I've watched some of them, but they mm -hmm. didn't grab me like Star Trek. She's she's definitely watched a few episodes because I was around. <laughs> mm -hmm, that's true. And I went to the uh, Star. Tell me, what was the movie that came out about 1970? It was Star Trek, right? 1972? Oh, the, oh. the Christmas movie, as Paul will yeah, tell you. I, 
Oh man, Star Trek the Motion Picture is a Christmas movie. It's a whole it's a whole ordeal, Peg. Please don't get it. Don't worry. There's no reason to get engaged <laughs> with this idea. Uh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the way we went to see that movie, I was working in a bookstore in uh, Wakefield, Rhode Island. And I lived in the back of the store. It was such an ideal. I mean, it's almost like a fairy tale to live in a bookstore in New England. And we had used books upstairs and new books downstairs. It was such a fabulous thing. Well, all my friends, we could walk to the theater from the bookstore. So my friends all came over and I remember that I had trouble getting them to get high for it because they were all sort of paranoid. I could not understand it. But anyway, we walked to the movie house together and that's what I remember the most. And it was a wonderful thing. And I think you're right. That is the way to see that movie because it is a lot of just big, pretty paintings of space. Because like it is definitely like they built all this, all that stuff existed. It was all a real thing. So they spent a lot of time like lingering on the big model they built and all the giant paintings of planets they float the model over. And I think yeah, we kind of go back and forth on the films being bad and good, but definitely better. Um, yeah, with the doors of perception thrown a little wider, as it were. <laughs> I find it so interesting that you feel like you didn't connect with the later uh, series the same way or that they, they didn't grab you the same way as the original series did. And I, I think part of that is just you you love the, the Star Trek you grew up with the most. And certainly for me, that is Next Generation. But I've never actually met someone that prefers the original series over any of the others. And I just find it really, uh, really interesting that you, you felt so compelled and so drawn to it. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I don't really know what it was about it, but for us in that little dark room, it was just like wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. So, yeah. Do you feel like it shaped your um, development of your political leanings or was that already in place and then it, this just kind of lined up with it? That's interesting. It didn't really, no, for me, it was, um, it was a relief. Just watching it was just a big relief. I've not really given it a great deal of thought, but that's how it felt. Like you sat down and even though it was a science fiction story, as you say, there was lots of stuff there, you know, to think about and to just absorb. That's how it felt for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is definitely a lot to kind of take in because it's a it's a completely different like I mean it, the 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 canon for example I mean it's just you're building a whole different world and a different way of of framing ideas and absorbing all of that and taking it in certainly is a lot to unpack. Yeah, that's true. I've heard a lot of people say that they felt that Star Trek kind of drove their push towards more leftist politics. But for me, it was the other way around. I grew up watching Next Generation a little bit, but I never, I didn't really become like a diehard fan until much, much later. But I was already... Like I grew up in a very conservative family and I was already far to the left in my politics before I started watching Star Trek in earnest and fell in love with it immediately because it just reflected the values that I had already internalized. So it sounds like that's a little bit closer yeah. to the experience that you had. Yes, very much. Very much so. Uh, hey, Rachel. Where's Rachel? Hello, I'm here. I had to unmute my microphone. Hi. Today's reason Rachel is late is because I got distracted singing in the shower. 
Oh, I was going to make up something about you just getting back in from a conference on another yeah. planet where you were giving a paper about something. But yeah, well, no, I was funny. practicing a Klingon opera. That is what distracted me. <laughs> it's, a, it's a sonic shower. <laughs> I just assumed it was a, a temporal distortion of some kind. See? Easy. There's yeah, any all number. of the above. When you think about it, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is a temporal distortion. Ooh. It's just highly localized to the individual's perception. Oh, that is <laughs> that is of, true. It is real easy to be late in Star Trek. You show like, <laughs> oh, why, why, why weren't you at the thing? Well, all of space time inverted while I was walking down the hallway, and I had to live out my own childhood again, all the way back to this moment. But I had to start, <laughs> and that when I and it took a little bit longer than I thought. So I, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Listen, that like 25 minutes I had to do to grieve the fact that I was going to have to go make all the same mistakes all over again and watch myself do them with helpless to stop myself. That made me late. I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, the temporal prime directive says I can't change any of those decisions. So I do just have to watch them and be sad. So it yes. did take 15. I took 25, 30 minutes longer than it took mm -hmm. me the first go around. I would have been on time. Sorry. Yeah. Space. <laughs> or like as an alternative, I got sucked into some sort of hypercube where I lived an entire life and had a family and just woke up in my bed and realized they're all gone. And I'm honest, it took me a minute to recover from that one. All right. I lost a planet <laughs> today. I just watched that episode. And he still plays flute after that forever. Nobody Picard. else really cares. I mean, like nobody at Starfleet seems to notice or care that much. Oh, uh, it really is just a thing they used. It's, I mean, ultimately, yeah, I will. We could go to bat on any of the time travel episodes and arcs, but mm, they play pretty fast and loose for people that seem to care. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I say, yeah, don't you shouldn't mess with it. I mean, I have a personal theory of like, OK, people go back in time and want to kill Hitler. Don't do that. Mm. We've already like someone like taps you on the shoulder like, no, dude, and they hand you a brochure and it says, so you're about to kill Hitler. And then you turn back around <laughs> and it's you from the slightly in the future. And there's a bunch right. of you all in like a room giving a seminar about no, no, we've dialed it in. This is exactly if you don't, if yeah. you kill Hitler, it gets worse. If you give him art school, it gets like this is exactly where you have to put it. Otherwise, everything is way different and much worse in the end. And like a very strange sort right. of seminar. But right. I don't know. That's me. See, I don't know, though, because, like, that's the gamble, right? That's the time travel gamble is, like, it could make everything's way better. It could make everything's way worse. And there's really no way to know until you do it. And then you've just butterfly affected yourself out of having any appendages because you blew all your arms and legs off or something. You know, like, it's that's why you don't roll those dice is because the enemy, you know, right? The hell, you know, is better than this hypothetical worse world that you might create. But like you might actually win the lottery and end up with a better world. Like we could have gay space communists if you kill Hitler. Who knows? Really, I think if anything, we should have made sure the USSR won. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> they they did. The, well, anyway. no, like in the long, <laughs> in the Cold War. Sense, sure, sure. No, I mean, say. sure. I just <laughs> thought I'd point that one out. Um. <laughs> But in my opinion, if you're going to have a time agent, right, you're going to send back someone back in time to like change things, right? It's not going to be one thing that they change. It's that they go back in time and live a good life. And that's how you they would have changed the universe. You know, like it, it, it's it would be a whole like series of living a, a positive life for humanity kind of thing. I'm adding one to our list of like sci-fi shows we need to discuss when we do our Patreon series where we only talk about other shows. Sisyphus just came out on Netflix and it rules. It's about time travel. And they have Ooh. this whole like wonderful thing going with how the recursion sort of loop back upon themselves until they've completed this very extended cycle, you know, which then destroys itself. It's cool stuff. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah, it's real weird. It's real cool.
Anyway, but the the sort of core thesis is when they build this machine, they have like the uploader and the downloader, right? And when they build the upload, they can send you back to where the downloader is, which is kind of how they think time travel might work. If we were ever to achieve it, we would first have to build the machine to download people sent back from the future. And so everybody who goes, only like 10% of people even physically survive it. And a lot of them after that still die because there's just, it's such a dangerous thing to do. And like tons and tons and tons of people are doing it anyway because everybody has something they regret you know everybody has that like one thing that they could just have done that thing differently they could die in peace right and i think that's such a like powerful concept to put behind time travel generally it's like the things people would go back for wouldn't be killing hitler it would be like that boyfriend you shouldn't have broken up with you know yeah i i guess i mean uh, <laughs> i'm telling it, it, it takes all kinds i suppose Nah, I'm, I'll die on this hill. People would go back for petty reasons first. I think like a lot of people that would have sur- that survived like the Korean War like would have gone back and not ordered people into battle maybe. But outside of the extreme cases, I think you're absolutely right. It's always the little things that keep you up at night. But you know, but the, the butterfly effect is legit. I mean, I'll give just like a very personal example. I The whole reason that I am married to the man that I'm married to and the reason that I live and work overseas can be traced back to a moment when I was in college in 1998 and I was using the chat program ICQ. If you remember that one, some of you kids are probably too young for that. I was using ICQ and it had a a random chat feature where it would just randomly connect you with another user online and you could chat with them. I did that one day and I connected with someone who is still a very close friend of mine. And when he took a job overseas, you know, some years later, he suggested maybe I should apply and I did. And then I met, I met Bill. And so like my entire life as it exists right now can be traced back to that random connection that happened in 1998. Right. I mean, I think that kind of perfectly distills it, right? Like there are so many small random chance things that happen in our lives that can have these like massive impacts on who we turn into, you know? Mm hmm. Like, and who's to say which one thing is sort of the, you know, whatever. Anyway, I don't want to like, I've been here. I showed up. I immediately derailed us. Let's bring ourselves back on track here. Yeah, I I actually, I I have a a question. I I guess I just want to go back to, um, like, Peggy, you were talking about the experience of watching motion picture in the in the theater and i didn't know if you had anything else that you wanted to expand on about that because i actually just recently rewatched all the films and it it was hard for me to get through that that movie because there were just long long gaps of no dialogue just long pan shots of the of the spaceship and you know it didn't flow like what we come to expect of a movie today and so even adjusting my expectations i i still found it kind of challenging but for you it was a really exciting experience to go and and see it in the theater breakthrough back then i'm not sure i can really explain what we broke through but i can remember most of the time i was in a group of people where they did not get what i was getting but i think the little group at at college did but i don't have a lot of people to talk about I don't know. It seems like that's been my whole life. Like, I was in a community college, and Janice Joplin came on the Ed Sullivan Show. I was absolutely flabbergasted. I was so excited. I was so excited. Well, it was all I could do to keep everybody else from changing the channel. And I thought she was like, wow. 
expanded my consciousness. And Star Trek expanded my consciousness, too. I liked what you said earlier about it being a relief, which makes sense in a way where because of just in a world where you are not in a major city or just with thousands of people, which is really a lot of lives, right? And that like, oh, well, are these the only ideas that exist? Am I wrong for thinking what I'm thinking, which is clearly at odds with or not necessarily what everyone else is? And to have things like, oh, wait, no, 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 there are a bunch of people in Hollywood making a show who like convinced a bunch of people to make a show about being nice to balls of light that show up and bother your shit, so to speak, right? Like an, a more humane approach to everything. And I like, I think that, yeah, I like that a lot. And it's sort of, I think that's one of the things, the reasons the show resonates is because one of the few flags of that kind that go up. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. Yeah, because I think it's uh, it's you know what that's what sets the Star Trek fandom apart from a lot of other fandoms is that it's not just about the story and the characters and the events that take place in the context of the story, but it's it's about the set of values that you know exist in this universe. That's what draws the fans together to um, really connect with each other. I mean, the, every Star Trek community that I've been a part of online. It's been a much deeper connection than, you know, just laughing at jokes about Picard and Q. Well, <laughs> that's true. And I think the historical context, you really can't understand. I don't think I can understand why it was so impactful without looking at the historical context it came out of. So the things that you and younger people saw as they grew up were a lot more polished. I mean... A lot of early shows, the special effects were pretty weak, but these days, you know, they're off the charts. So it's, it's an interesting thing. And there were people who grew up in the 50s who were seeing this. And from that perspective, it, it's really a mind blower to me. That to me was its value. Certainly would have expanded your perception of what's possible. Yeah, well, and even like in a social sense, right, like Gene Roddenberry was very intentionally trying to push those boundaries um, and was very intentionally trying to sort of challenge what people thought like certain kinds of people could do. You know, having a black woman on the bridge was like mind blowing at the time, right? And I think that like it's it's all this sort of leading edge of what can we be that to an extent I think sci-fi still is right but like it's important to recognize that that leading edge is leading like it had to have something to push against well check off in the middle of the cold war you're like oh you know what russian guys driving the boat now yeah he's, yeah he's got a funny story about everything yeah let's get let's get him in here good haircut like him good kid well, yeah, and challenging like the idea of what your equal can be or who your equal could be, I think is important. Absolutely. I mean, I've I've said before on this podcast, my my favorite TOS episode is the unaired pilot because you know we see Major Barrett as the first officer, the OG number one, and I feel like that's truer to to what Gene Roddenberry wanted to show the world. So I'm curious, because one of the things I know about sort of Star Trek's impact on culture is that Star Trek kind of created convention culture. And it was the first time people really got together and like dressed up as these characters from a TV show. And it had this sort of cult following that really hadn't existed before. I don't know, were you like in on that at all? Was that something you participated in? No, I didn't. <laughs> I was so, uh, I had my head in the books and uh, I was I was earning a master's degree. I had an assistant professor job and I, I was way too busy. 
I was doing something meaningful with my life. Sorry. No. no I don't mean it that <laughs> no, way no. at all. Oh, I mean, oh, I, no. I totally do. I absolutely do. Oh, like, yeah, no. no. You should not have been at Star Trek conventions. You should absolutely have been doing that. Where you're going out and doing early intervention with children so their lives are better. So they can go dress up like nitwits at conventions like us. No, like, like I mean, that's 100% more useful of a thing to be doing with your life. We can all do well, something, but no, that's no, like, I, like. That was going to be my follow-up question was, were you aware of those people? Did you see them? And what did you think of them at the time? What did you make of all that? I was aware. I thought it was great. I mean, I kind of enjoyed it the way I enjoyed the dead. I didn't follow the dead, but I thought how fabulous to follow the dead. That would be great. And um, I thought the Star Trek convention was good, too. But uh, I didn't... Uh, Star Trek was personal for me, I guess. That's what it amounts to. Everything was personal because of how I was growing up. Like in high school, for example, nobody thought the way I thought. And I, I was a female, so I didn't talk much anyway. And uh, the way I got around it was I, I worked at a little store. It was one of the very first stores that had multi-departments. And I worked in the, quote, record department with the albums. And the only way I got away with it was my dad thought I was working in the record department filing things. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That is I, was, I was actually working in the record department and I knew very little about the music. I was in high school, Jackson, Mississippi, very protected you know, and uh, this guy came in one day and everywhere I'd go, like we used to go to parties and they'd be outside and I'd be coming along, walking along. And in the distance, I'd hear, there's the little record girl. <laughs> so I was the little record girl. And one day this fellow came in and he said, you don't know anything about this music, do you? I said, well, you know, not really. And he said, I'm going to buy you an album. And he bought me The Doors, Strange Things, right? strange that is an album to buy people that is that it was oh, yeah. perfect perfect i never heard it so i got a we had this big stereo like they used to have you know and you had to put a special needle in it so i took the old needle to the special place with a special person who knew about them and could get me a new one so he got it and then i said you know i'll never get this in i don't know i don't know how to there's no baby i said you know i need you to to get to come and put this in my stereo at my house and he looked at me like are you kidding i said no my parents are there it's all good i just need you to do this so he did he came to my house and he put the needle in that big stereo and then i found out about the james bond books so i would lie on the couch reading novel after novel with earphones listening to the doors at full volume and my parents thought i was studying so uh <laughs> Yeah, sure. Records. I get it. Um, I hope that's not boring to all of you, but it was really fabulous for me. <laughs> I mean, I think that mirrors a lot of our experiences with, I mean, slightly different pieces of media, but that's, yeah, in weird worlds where you're like, oh, I'm not, everybody's like me. I got to figure out a place to be. Someone's just like, okay, here's, yeah. Yeah. Like that is the opposite of boring. <laughs> that is amazing. I love that story. Like, you don't know anything about these records, do you? Nah. You have to come assemble it for me. Like, do okay, fine. Yeah. All right. <laughs> fine. You're the record girl. I don't want to piss you off. I won't get any records. 
Well, from uh, there, you kind of rode education to get out of the South, right? Well, at the time where I lived and who I was, the only job for me was, there were two. You could become a nurse or you could become a teacher, but you only did that as a backup in case you got a dud husband who couldn't provide. So that's the kind of world it was back then. And I didn't like it one bit, but I didn't know how to get out. So I knew I had to get married to get out. If you give people a lot of exit doors on that situation, the room empties pretty quickly. So, yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So I married this person from the psychology department I was in and his nickname was God. He was a weird guy. It was a bad marriage. But I got out of Mississippi, which is the good part, and I landed in Rhode Island, which is the silver lining because it was just beautiful there. And I'd never been up north, so I just thought it was wonderful and liberal and oh my. (laughs) So, you know, you get to places various different ways. So you said his nickname was God? Like, yeah, amazing. like, you know, we were such little hippies back then. We didn't have a fraternity, of course, and we hated them. So we had a, a YMCA that had the post office in the basement. And upstairs was the philosophy department because it wasn't exactly a big department at Mississippi State. Haha, <laughs> this sounds like my college experience getting a philosophy. Really? Yeah, our, our entire philosophy department was literally 10 students. Anyway, keep going. Well, we had very cool philosophy professors, and uh, at the time, the Klan was going out and burning down houses and churches, and that's when they killed those three little girls. Oh, God. So our philosophy professors were very involved in that. So anyhow, our little, we called it the freak fraternity, because back then we were freaks. And we kind of hung out upstairs in the philosophy department. And it was just amazing. And all sorts of small things happened that, that I remember as fondly. I mean, I lived in a dorm. And if you left the dorm at a, after 11, if you weren't back, you couldn't get in until the next morning. And that's a formula for some disasters, if you ask me. But one night I was in the dorm and I got a call from one of the guys at the Y. And he said, we got somebody over here that you really need to come and help him. Well, you do it. I said, well, I I can't come back here if I do it. He said, well, that's right. So I went on over there and this guy had landed in the middle of the woods. I mean, our college was in the middle of the woods and I don't know how he ever got there. And he was really gone on acid and he was an amazing person. His energy was incredible. And so I stayed with him all night and um, he asked me if we could be physical. I said, I really don't think this is that kind of a thing. And he said, okay. And we finally went went to sleep and the next day he was gone and he left me a beautiful poem and uh I don't know why I'm telling you this but it was part of the whole experience back then of being sort of isolated from the big population and I don't know <laughs> that guy stayed with me for some reason hmm. well you know how do you Find your own identity in such an oppressive and rigid culture, you know, with so little access to alternative identities. You shared the story. You sound so much like my own mom, actually, and stories she's told me about her experiences. Um, You know, she grew up in Ohio, uh, and this was, you know, back when Ohio was sort of a booming industrial hub or whatever. And, you know, she was sort of constantly quietly rebelling against these oppressive sort of waspy expectations. And she loved Star Trek, and she loved reading science fiction, and she loved 
loved, you know, progressive rock and acid and all the sort of things that, you know, everybody was doing then. And I think that, you know, that sort of counterculture was really created in that moment, you know, and sort of that advent of like broadcast media and of sort of these big migrations where people were moving all around the country for different colleges and different jobs. And, you know, I, I think, you know, with that and the space race and sort of all of the sort of new technology that was just cropping up all at once, like it, it was sort of this mass expansion, not just of knowledge in terms of like sciences, but also in terms of sort of the boundaries of what kind of acceptable behavior was, you know, and who was allowed to shape culture and have an opinion on this from sort of that, I think, boon of abundance. There's a very similar moment in Russian history around um, 1900, where a whole generation of men and women had been given education opportunities, like massively, um, you know, there was a progressive czar and then a counter-revolutionary czar, and a whole generation of people were given kind of an education on an equalitarian level that had never been seen before in Russia. And then it shut down in the following generations. And that seems to be like, you know, kind of what happened in, in the baby boom. You know, you have this generation of people that, you know, got that expansion. Right. So I guess what you're saying is if you want a real repressive society, don't let chicks go to school. Is that, am I getting this right? (laughs) I mean, in general, you could just slowly defund education programs so that they're less and less effective and then criticize them for being less effective as a justification to further defund them. I mean, if I was going to, you know, long-term destroy an education system over a couple decades, that might be how I'd do it, hypothetically. (laughs) Is this about something? I'm sorry. I'm getting a lot of subtext here. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not about the American education system or anything. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, um, so I want to hear more stories about wandering around rural North Carolina and helping people. Please, do you have anything in your bag of stories that is fits that bill? That's just a real. I, well, I mean, yes, that's I like do. a really, that's a really interesting time. Like, so, I mean, that is in the '90s, right? That's during like I'm a teenager then. So, mm-hmm. like, this, I know that basically, yeah, the TVA spreading out infrastructure in the South. I'm in Atlanta. My experience mirrors yours in weird ways. Both of my grandmothers were from equally distant South and North of Atlanta versions of Georgia, where it was awful. They both married Air Force dudes and moved to town. Basically, they said you have to take us out. Like, they took a different tack out of like they both had uh, degrees but they were not they took a different tack out of that but essentially he said found air force dudes that here take me out we're getting out of here and my grandmothers both went there and then raised my mother and father in atlanta and around uh, large cities and that was sort of the path out but i know that the lot uh, going to family reunions going to do mission trips when i was in church still they're like oh no rural georgia is still the middle of nope it is awful in a lot of places in, in this country and sort of think about those is i don't know we just don't we do not do it and as a consideration of sort of the thing we love about star trek oh the future's everywhere well the future is not damn everywhere and it really is a matter of getting those things to people and so that's just a fascinating story to those sort of that world yeah and presently we're still struggling to bring the present to the entire united states right yeah so i don't know if there are any uh, any amusing anecdotes that come from that that are less tragic or more it's really up to you i don't know i'm just trying i'm not the best interviewer you're fine. I have a hilarious story, if I can tell it right. It's not in a Southern story, though. It happened in, um, wait a minute, it did. It happened in Asheville area. That's right. And I had a client, bless, 
baby's heart. She had, um, you know, when I was a child, there was a thing called a, quote, waterhead baby, end quote. And what that really meant was fluid on the brain. And babies born that way died. And now, by the time I became an early interventionist, they had learned to put shunts in their heads to draw off the excess fluid. But the problem with the shunt is that you have to keep it really clean. And some family situations are pretty difficult. The one that this baby was born into, oh gosh, there were just all sorts of things happening in and around that house. But the thing about the baby was that the shunt kept getting infected. And so they'd have to go back to Mission Hospital and do another surgery. It was terrible. So we did some research and found out that down in the Chapel Hill area, they actually have medical people down there very advanced. And they had a method down there that somehow uh, corrected the problem internally so that you didn't have to have this open shunt sticking out of your head, you know. And we sent that baby there and they fixed her for life. But uh, whenever we would go there, I would run into other professionals who were helping the family. And we all had stories. They were interesting. It was a long time ago. And we just we just worked well with them. And we helped them to understand about what their baby needed. And one of the really good things about my job was uh, home visiting is an art. Because you're inserting yourself into someone's most private place. And so I used to try to meet them where they were. And I had one mom who smoked a lot of cigarettes. And I didn't give her any trouble about it. We just stood over the stove and had the vent fan on. And I'd let her smoke because she would talk to me about the child and how what we could do about it and how we could help her. Stuff like that. I had one family I visited. I had to walk through about 10 rabid dogs. But for some reason, they didn't bite me. And uh, I would go through them every time to go and see this person. And she was kind of held captive in a trailer behind the... It was a real trashy place in Asheville. But she and I became pretty close friends. There were, there's my very first home visit in Asheville was amazing. The thing is, if one early interventionist has been there a while, when the new one comes, they get to give you their worst case. So that happened to me. So I, I went to. Well, see I've worked this. a job before. You always hand off the garbage to the new guy. You huh? hand off the yeah. worst case. Yeah. So my first home visit in Asheville, I arrived at this trailer, and there were red footprints on the steps going up to the house, up to the trailer, and the when window in the trailer had been shattered so there was a piece of cardboard in it so I thought I was quite brave that I went on in there and uh <laughs> wow and the, the mom didn't say a thing about the condition of things for a long time and neither did I uh we just I don't know what we talked about but at last she started to talk about what happened the night before and they'd had somebody sleeping on the couch and they wanted him to leave so he got really mad so she was very careful to be sure to put the children in the back bedroom by themselves so they wouldn't you know hear it or be in the middle of it so I'm just standing there thinking these poor children are alone in the back room and they're hearing shattered glass and gunshots all sorts of things and I, I, I was amazed at her reasoning. So we had a lot of work to do together. And she would try to see if I was going to betray her. And one time I went to her house, she had no food. 
And uh, I said, you're going to be all right this weekend? You know, I can go to the food pantry for you. No, no, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'm going to get some food. So I came back the next day just to see if she was okay. And her refrigerator was packed. She'd gotten paid. And I think what she was doing was wanting to see what I report her for not having food. And of course, I didn't. And after that, I followed her from place to place for several years with her children and uh, try to help her to, to see things a different way, maybe. And help the kids get what they needed. It was a great job. And I don't know what it has to do with Star Trek, except that it was a great adventure. <laughs> well, I think it has a lot to do with Star Trek. It's 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 a total reflection of the values that are embodied and, and that we're striving towards that are, are reflected in the show's universe. I mean, I keep hearing, yeah, I know you're not much of a next generation, but I keep hearing Counselor Troy in everything that you're describing. I think that's amazing. I'm going to have to check out the next generation. I think you'd like it. Yeah. I mean, so Lauren Michaels, the man who produces almost all of the sketch comedy that most people have ever seen, but Saturday Night Live most notably, when asked, I think rightly says, oh, your favorite era of Saturday Night Live is when you were in the eighth grade. And there's something <laughs> to just like, well, right. It's just that's sort of the level that they aim their jokes in that kind of in a sense of humor of that level, or at least in that way where it's like, oh, no. And that's also a very formative time for your sensibilities, just culturally. So, like, so at a point where, you're like, OK, great. No, the one that you love the most is the one you grew up with. And for most of us, that has been TNG and that era because it is the longest it is the one that has the most episodes, but I love the old ones. I love the new ones. And I think there's a lot to be had in, in, I mean, everybody is iterating on, what do they say? Star Trek is a place. And I think that speaks a lot to this too, is like sort of making that world and wanting that place to be here. Anyway, you'll enjoy TNG. It's kind of fun. Yeah, you will, especially because for some people, this makes it more difficult, but the first couple of seasons, it's very, very eighties. And so I have a feeling you'll, uh, you'll appreciate that vibe. Okay. The 80s were so terrible, weren't they? I, I, <laughs> I only remember I some of the it. 80s. I hated the 80s. Oh, I bet. So my favorite, okay, so let's be let's be real. Yes, the 80s were terrible. My favorite movie growing up was a 90-minute long toy commercial starring Orson Welles. <laughs> right? That is just, right. And I was like nine. I didn't know. I, I didn't know anything about this. But yeah, Transformers the movie, 1987. I've read it a lot. I'm an idiot. I live in a nightmare world. What do you want? <laughs> that, well, for mine, for me, it, well, I shouldn't say this. It, well, it was kind of a cocaine decade. It was a cocaine decade. And uh, that's how I think of the 80s. Oh, no, that's not how you think of the 80s. That's just the 80s. There's nothing to that think is about. The 80s. the 80s were a collective institutional coke binge. <laughs> <laughs> I did not like it. I liked it, of course, but I mean, I didn't like the way people's personalities changed when they did it. Yeah. And if you're at a party and everyone was doing it but you, it became very strange. And I decided I didn't want my personality to be like that. So that's why I never, I, I taught Amy just like Allen Ginsberg, you know, he told us LSD, marijuana, that's all you need. You don't need anything else, <laughs> you know, and that I heard him say that in person and I saw him play the spoons at a black college in, outside of Jackson, Mississippi. I can wander forever, but. I had a point, but I don't know what it is anymore. <laughs> oh. oh, I know. Well, you know, the way I was introduced to it was this. There weren't very many hippies in Jackson, Mississippi when I was a hippie in Jackson. So we were a pretty tight group. 
And somebody brought this product and invited me over to try it. I never tried it. So I said, okay, great. I'll, I'll try it. So I sat there with David and Peter and, uh, and we did this thing and it was just amazing. And it was just amazing. So I don't know, a couple of weeks later, I thought to myself, you know, that was really nice. I think I'll see if I can get some more, some of that. I'll see if I can get some of that. So I went back and I got a little bit and we all sat down the same David and Peter. We sat down and did it. And I looked up at them and I said, wait a minute, this isn't it. And they died laughing because what they had given me first was pure and what they gave me second was after they stepped on it and started to sell it oops so that's yeah but you know some of us can tell <laughs> oh no no that's what i'm saying they, they know that they're like oh no we did oh <laughs> oops well and you know that's capitalism really like, oh, no, we gave him the good product. We got to step When on they it. cut your Coke and make it shitty for money, that's capitalism, baby. That's disgusting. Yes, I agree. They thought it was hilarious. And it's great because the 80s were that period of time where everybody was on so much Coke that it seemed like a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> and people were, we, that's where the yuppies came about, I think, right? You're yeah, upwardly right. That group of people who just compulsively profession. worked until their hearts exploded because they were on shit tons of blow because it was cheap then, just like everything else. Well, also, they and had they to had to work to afford the blow. Well, they had to have heart pine cupboards in their kitchen, and they had to have Mexican tile on their floor, and they, you know, the best thing was very important to have the best one of whatever it was and that's yeah. where i saw the true clause of materialism just really come out was the 80s well no making the, the rarity of those objects is something that you can't make bring, oh bring it to me like oh god really like it's from goddamn the rainforest and we to make cabinet really cabinets is that what you want this for? Uh, no. and then which yep we got it. we're doing it crank it up get them going yeah yeah. yeah. Well, and it's, you know, it's that entitlement, right? It's that sort of overconfidence that you should be entitled to have such a thing, to experience that kind of luxury and decadence, you know, just by virtue of being born, you know, and I think that's sort of the great lie that was you know, originally woven in sort of the divine providence of kings uh, and then sort of distributed throughout the upper class and upper middle class throughout the 80s that has, you know, since tanked our economy, our environment and our society generally, right? That consumerism, like you were saying. No, no, no. All those giant oak cabinets and everyone's big house full of china no one's ever used. Those are all going to be very useful at some point, I'm sure. Gang, it's been, this has been a pretty good time. I, I kind of want to wrap this up, but I kind of want to do that with a weird question. Because, Peg. Because you're Paul. Yeah, that's, that's kind of who I am. That's, um, Peg, we like to end with a dumb game because we're a podcast and it's good to end on a laugh. You are trapped in an escape pod, plummeting down to some rock for some reason to start your episode of Star Trek, the original series. Which crew member, or maybe give you up to three crew members, who is your, who are you down there with? But I want to hear, I'm really interested. So let's just say it's one because I want, that makes the question, cuts it real to the quick. Who are you oh, trapped in that escape capsule down on the way down to that planet with? Fuck. Yeah, there's only one answer, Paul. I don't know why you expected anything other than Spock. <laughs> she, but... <laughs> she didn't think about that. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say. Anything else, I would have been like, really? What are you thinking? Who is yours? 
Bones has got a flask and medical knowledge. Yeah, I, I feel like that's a good choice. I would have gone with yeah. either Bones or, or Scotty because, you know, you're going to need Scotty's building you a radio out of the thing. Yeah, he's building you a radio exactly. out of the capsule. Kirk's going to wrestle you um, for you. He might wrestle for you or you. Yeah. Counterpoint. Uh, there's really only two types of decision being made here, and it's do you want to survive or do you want to die having fun? I choose survival <laughs> with Spock, but die having fun is a valid answer. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm doing now. So <laughs> I got a thing for a spot. Oh no, you're you're not the only right one. though. Um, Let me mm-hmm. That was like a golden era of hot Jews on TV. Well, and Uhura, my lord. Uhura. No, see, that's a that's an yeah. easy choice, right? Like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. no. And you should actually, Amy, you should make your mother watch uh, the animated series because it's got way more of that Ahura magic. Like, it's all the actors, Peg. It's the same actors as most mm-hmm. of the same actors. And then okay. a couple, then they do a bunch more stuff because you just draw it instead of build it out of weird foam. Uh, and that gives them a lot more leeway to, like, get more aliens and do weirder stuff. And it's a really the same writers. It's the same actors. It is the same series. It's just another three, like, another, like, 50 episodes of it some of them are absolute garbage but some of them are great Corey, you just went yeah. through a bunch of them yeah, yeah i've actually never oh, seen yeah. the original either or the the animated series either so we could check that out together yeah i actually just recently watched it for the first time because so, like, i'm in the middle of of watching i've seen everything from trek at, at this point but i except lower decks i haven't gotten into lower decks yet but i'm, I'm watching all the content in chronological order in, in my chronological by the way that it happens in the story not by release date so i just went back and uh, watched the original series recently and followed up with my first ever viewing of the animated series and paul's right it's there's a if you really love uhura and um some of the other cast members that don't get as much airtime in the uh the original series you're gonna love the animated series there's a lot of fun stuff that happens that's great so nice I've enjoyed- definitely need to check out next generation because i think you're gonna like that a lot all right. Well, with I'll that, work. we thank you very much, Peg, for joining us. Um, Absolutely. And I guess we're going to sign off for now. This has been Gay Space Communism. I'm I'm Paul Byron. I'm Corey Archibald. Oh, I'm Amy Hassel. I'm gay. Chamberlain. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rachel. And, <laughs> and don't forget to try and at least do a, a grandfather paradox every once in a while if you can help it. It's fun for the system. Goodbye. It's a little bit. It's a treat. Thanks, (laughs) y'all.